0: All right I've got some good news for you this morning. I got a lot of good news, Church, and I want to start by reading you an email that I received just yesterday, one of the things that this church uh, is presently contemplating thanks, Tim. One of the things that this church is presently contemplating, nothing has been said or done, and no decisions have been made. Um, but if, if you'd like to give some input on it, please by all means, come and speak to myself or the head elder or one of the elders. We're talking about maybe doing something that's a little more sophisticated with our media ministry. I don't know if you're aware, but as of right now, we have a YouTube channel. A big shout-out to Nathan Brosman and all of his hard work. And we have, some of our videos on there have approaching 10,000 views. An average is probably closer to three or 4,000, but it's really exciting to know that even with the simple one-camera shoot that we do... We are having an impact all over the world. And I just want to read you an email that I received this morning. I get lots of emails like this. And because I've been getting emails like this for almost 20 years now, I sort of, I don't take them for granted, but they become normal for me. And I thought, you know what? The church would probably really like to hear that. And so it says, Dear Pastor David, hello, my name is, I'll leave that blank for now. I'm a member of, and I'll leave that blank as well, but it's from a country in Europe. I wanted to reach out to your church and to your pastoral team to thank you for holding such an inspiring series, both the Devoted series and the Ablazing Grace series. I could never understand the Old Testament in its entirety until I found this series online. I was what I call Seventh-day Adventist by birth, but not by transformation until this past year I have found my faith and why it is that I personally want, to follow, I want Jesus in my life. I still don't yet know how to study the Bible or know how to know how to get to know God. Um, she goes on, but I'm, but I'm learning. So it was a blessing from God to find your series and to study along with you and your church. I haven't yet finished, and to be honest, I don't want to finish either of them since I can't go a day without one of these sermons. I cherish this time in my day. And oddly enough, I feel like I'm a part of your church, even though I've never been to Australia. Just another thing that I love about the Seventh-day Adventist community. She then talks about her own experience a little bit, and I want to jump down to this part. I keep my brothers and sisters at Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church in my prayers and will always lift them up to the Lord to continue the transforming, real, honest community and fellowship of growing stronger and stronger. And I sincerely ask for prayers here at my church We are a family that is growing day by day, and God is doing great things, but I especially ask for prayer for our youth. We aren't there yet, but our wilderness won't last forever. Sooner or later, we are going to see the promised land. Thank you once again to you, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Jared, and the Kingscliff Church. You all have my love and my prayers. God bless. Can you say amen? These are, not, these are not unusual. These kinds of emails come to us regularly, both to my direct inbox and also through the church's website. Beloved, I just want to tell you, it's really exciting to be a part of something that God is doing, something big, and I really believe that there are many places in the world, not the least of which is Australia, that are looking for something like a model church, Something like a church, not a perfect church, notice I didn't say that, but an exemplary church, a church where the message of the gospel in practical and tangible ways is being brought not just to the church every Saturday morning, uh, but to the community, and we're not there yet. But I think we're headed that direction, and it's exciting to be a part of it. And so it thrills my soul to get an email like that. I just want to encourage you all to reach out in your own wonderful, unique ways into your community, into the lives of the people that are around you, and tell them the good news that Jesus is awesome and he's coming soon. Can you say amen to that? We continue our study today of the Old Testament, and our sermon today is titled, I think I left my clicker back there, Eli, do you want to run that up to me? I think I left it there. We'll start with a word of prayer while... Is it up there? Did you find it? Or maybe I brought it, set it somewhere. That would... There you go. Thank you. All right. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, big day today. It's a Sabbath. And it's not just any ordinary Sabbath. Father Blair is getting baptized today. This is an extraordinary day. And we're looking forward to that this afternoon. 2.15 right here in the church. And Father, now as we turn our attention to the text of Scripture, may you... Reveal to us by the power of your spirit that which we wouldn't otherwise get. Father, if we just came to the text and read it, we might get something. But today I'm praying that you will give us more than that. That you will give us something that only your spirit could do. Father, you know that I've studied over these texts. I've poured over them. No doubt many church members here have as well in anticipation of the ongoing study of the Old Testament. But, Father, today I'm praying for something supernatural. I'm praying for a breakthrough. Give us something really spiritual and supernatural from your throne is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you didn't pick up on that, the baptism is today right here in the church. I think originally it was going to be outside, but because of the weather we're going to do it right here at 2.15. Did I say that right, Jared? Okay, great. All right, let's start by a little bit of review here. Our sermon today is titled, Perhaps Unusually, All that glitters isn't bronze. Now, I I got to thinking, maybe they don't say that here. Do you guys say all that glitters isn't gold? Okay, good. So we're on the same page. So I'm going to do a little play on that, and you'll see why in just a bit. All that glitters isn't bronze, and today we're going to be talking about the experiences, the twin contrasting and conflicting experiences of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam, king of Israel, and Rehoboam, king of Judah. Uh, But before we do that, let's just take a recap. Sometimes it's good just to sort of remind ourselves of where we're at, where we've come from. So let's just start, not going all the way back, certainly to beginning family exodus land, but let's start with where we are in the kings. At this point, Israel as a composite, all 12 tribes, has had three and only three kings, and there will be no more. At this point, we're going to see the division of Israel into the 10 tribes of Israel, the two tribes of Judah, so Israel as a composite of 12 tribes only ever had three kings and while those kings certainly had some ups they had some very significant downs and I was just saying this to the youth Sabbath School class this morning I don't know how you are but when I think about Saul for example take the three kings of Israel when when I think about Saul my general impression of Saul is not positive I don't know how you when you just sort of Saul comes to your mind first king of Israel do you generally get positive thoughts or less than positive for me it's like I find it hard to come up with something positive about Saul, so generally negative. Um, When I think about David, I have mixed feelings. There's some really positive stuff there, and then there's some really negative stuff. And in general, when I found myself thinking about Solomon, it was pretty positive. But funnily enough, the text does not support my positivity, and we talked about that last week. In fact, there is no indication in either Chronicles or Kings that Solomon was ever converted after his departure. Um, We believe that he was converted because of books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, that he finally eventually turned his way back to God, but there is no textual indication that I could find in either Chronicles or Kings that indicates that Solomon turned around. And so my impressions of him have historically been fairly positive, but I think that was without any textual evidence. It's just sort of a sense based on the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, here's where we're at. Here's what we know about Saul. First of all, he was a man largely of appearance and not substance, right? He was a tall guy. He was good-looking. He was charismatic, but there was very little of substance there, and that, that materialized or began to evidence very shortly after his anointing. He was consumed with envy, and the way that he related to David when the people were shouting after the slaying of Goliath, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. He was consumed with envy, and he just couldn't wait to see David dead. As the story progresses, Saul basically loses his mind after the death of Samuel when he feels that he's cut off from God. He even goes so far as to explore witchcraft by visit- visiting the witch of Endor, even though there is express biblical command in the law of Moses that anybody that does such a thing would be deserving of stoning. So just think that through. Here's the king of God's chosen people, the first ever king, and he degenerates to such a low place that he's actually trying to have communion, uh, you know, post-death communion with the prophet Samuel. It's a remarkable turn of events. Samuel, uh, Saul didn't want to listen to the words of Samuel while he was alive, but after his death, he tried to find him through the witch of Endor. And then finally, his life ends absolutely miserably. He ends up uh, falling on his own sword and killing himself. So that's not particularly positive. We then shift to David, who you could say there are some really positive things about David, but there are a lot of really negative things that Jared, I thought, brilliantly brought out in his superb sermon, What Might Have Been. By the way, I just put that up on my Facebook page because I just want that sermon to have wide exposure. I just absolutely was thrilled with the content of that sermon. I want to thank you again publicly, Jared, for it. Well, this is what we have in the experience of David, just to recap. First of all, he's off to a promising start, in some ways not unlike Saul, But shortly thereafter ends up raping Bathsheba. And if you're a little put off by that, saying, what, what, raped Bathsheba? The answer is yes. You might have thought, as I did at a time, incorrectly that this was consensual. In fact, when you go back and study carefully the textual data, it was a forceful, coercive situation. Bathsheba was not uh, uh, complicit and uh, was, was not some sort of a temptress or any other such thing. David absolutely forcefully placed himself upon her and then... As if that wasn't enough, he then tried to cover it up by the murder of uh, her husband Uriah, and as Jared brought out in his sermon, others also died. When the prophet Nathaniel comes in, he pronounces his own death sentence, and he ends up being what the Bible calls simply a man of blood, and because of that, he was not allowed to build the temple. Now, of course, there were some really high points in the life of David. Nobody would deny that. Certainly, the Psalms give evidence of that, but... Much of the experience of David and much of the experience of Solomon, his son, and now we're going to see Rehoboam, his grandson, uh, and and David's other sons as well, is a direct result of the decision that David made on that fateful day to take Bathsheba against her will. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Jared's already teased some of that out. Okay, finally, Solomon we talked about last week. Again, very similar in some regards to David and Saul, off to a promising start. But as we talked about last week, he had a divided heart. A non-shalem heart, you might remember. I was really proud of Moesha in our Sabbath school class this morning. She remembered that. Uh, Solomon was beset with uncontrolled ambition, and we're going to see the downsides of that here today. Hundreds of foreign women. He lusted not only for material prosperity, gold, wisdom, but also for women. And uh, not only did he build the temple, which is probably what he's best known for, but he also built the high places of idol worship. And so that sort of brings us up to speed where we're at with the first and only three kings over the composite 12 tribes of Israel. Several things that we can draw from this. The first is that a departure from God's will can never be safe or inconsequential. A departure from God's will is never safe and it's never without consequence. God never intended for Israel to have a king. In fact, he had warned them expressly. If you have a king, these certain uh, effects will eventuate. This is what will happen. But Israel was persuaded that they knew better. How often do we do this in our own experience? God's express will is known to us, but we're persuaded that we know just a little better. And we think a small departure, or a subtle departure, or even a nuanced departure from the will of God will actually be better for us. And uh, in fact, we're going to see today that not only is there consequences associated with the departure from God's revealed will, but those consequences, as Jared brought out in his sermon, reverberate generation after generation after generation, and we'll see that today. Let's start by stating the obvious, but for many of us, unfortunately, it's not the obvious, and that is that God wants your happiness more than you want your own happiness. Can the church say amen to that? God didn't make you to be miserable. He didn't make you to be unhappy. God didn't make you to enjoy pleasure and to enjoy life only to keep all of the things that you would otherwise enjoy from you. That's not the picture of God that's painted in either the Old or the New Testaments. And so we get ourselves into tricky predicaments and situations when we say, you know what? God says A, but I really think that B or C or D would be in my own best interest. B would make me happier than A, A being the will of God. C would make me happier, it would be better for me. And yet again and again and again we are presented in the text of Scripture with this idea that every departure from the will of God is both bad for you and actually, in in a terrible irony, makes you less happy than you would have been if you just would have gone with the will of God in the first place. God can work with our plan B, God can work with plan C, God can work with plan D, there's no question, God can work with our departures from his revealed will. Of course he can, but the person that suffers, the people that suffer in those departures is us. God knew that it would have not been in Israel's best interest to have had a king, but he allowed them to have a king. Having a king was not part of plan A, right? This was, this was a chapter that was never supposed to be here, right? And neither was this, incidentally. The Old Testament should have looked something like this, beginning family, exodus, land, Messiah, right? But instead we have the, the, the parenthetical statement of kings and exile, but this wasn't part of God's plan. But God says, okay, you want to go that way? We can go that way. I can work with B, I can work with C, I can work with D. God can work with your plan X, Y, and Z if, if he needs to, but the person that will suffer the most as a consequence of departing from God's revealed will is you, You will be the one, and we're going to see this today with Israel. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reminds us of why it is that we read the Old Testament. Some of you might be thinking, I hope you're not, but occasionally you might find yourself thinking, week to week, why are we just studying through the Old Testament? Man, Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament. Well, the good news, if you're feeling that way, and I hope you're not, is that we're about 75 to 80% of the way through. And I want to sort of orient you as to why. I think many of you would probably be able, be able to give a good answer to this. But what is the New Testament answer as to why we should even pay any attention to all these kings and their departures from the Lord and all of these things that happen and all of these apostasies and these exiles? Why should we pay any attention to it? Shouldn't we just be talking about Jesus and the Gospels and the mission to take the good news of a crucified and, and raised, cri- resurrected Christ to the world? The answer is yes. But the good news of Jesus is only as good as the bad news of the Old Testament is bad. I want to say that again. The good news of the New Testament Messiah Jesus is only as good as the bad news of the Old Testament is bad. And the bad news of the Old Testament is really, really bad. Look at what Paul says. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. Now these things, the various Old Testament stories that we've been studying through here, become our and what's the next word there? They're our, what's the word, everyone? They're our examples. To the intent, notice, for the purpose, so that, all of that stuff, some of it hairy, some of it very difficult to read. You might remember the book of Judges and how painful that was. So all of that stuff, he says, was written as an example to us to the intent that we, we what, Paul, should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them, here it is again, as what's the word? As examples, and they were written for our admonition. That word means encouragement, for our warning. To wake us up, to wake up. Go read the Old Testament and wake up. Now watch where he goes with this. For our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come, no temptation has taken you except as is common to man. And many of us know this text. In fact, it's one of my very favorite texts in the New Testament. But God is faithful who will not suffer to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. And we often quote that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, in isolation. You know, hey, God has not made any temptation so big that I can't overcome it. But in the context in which Paul writes those words, he's saying, hey, look, there is a basic commonality between you and the Old Testament stories and the Old Testament figures. Even in Paul's day, there could have been a temptation to concentrate less and less on the Old Testament and more and more on the good news of a coming Messiah. And, of course, we do need to concentrate on Jesus. And we're seeing all throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is omnipresent. He's ubiquitous. He's everywhere in the Old Testament. But here's the point. Paul says, look, there's a basic commonality in the human experience you can change the costumes, you can change the cars to chariots, and you can change the way that people live to the way that people now live, but there's a fundamental commonality to the experience of the people in the Old Testament, to our experience. They were tempted to idolatry. We are tempted to idolatry. They were tempted to complain. We are tempted to complain. They were tempted to sexual immorality. We are tempted to sexual immorality. And Paul says, listen, don't ignore the Old Testament. Pay attention to the stories and the experiences of people like Saul and David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam because there are lessons to learn from these people even in 2015 in Australia. Do you believe that, church? Okay, well, let's talk about one of those lessons today. At this point, it's probably well for us just to remind ourselves that the Bible is made up of two kinds of stories, descriptive stories and prescriptive stories. The descriptive stories are just exactly what that sounds like. They describe what happened. For example, when David raped Bathsheba. That's not not telling us what we should do or how we should behave. In fact, that is directly contrary to God's will for our behavior and our moral pattern. But it's describing what happened because the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the history of the people of God, Israel and Judah and others. Then there are prescriptive stories. These are stories that not only describe what happened historically, but they prescribe or they say, this is how you should live. Not what is descriptive, but what ought to be prescriptive. And today we're going to talk about a lot of things, frankly, that are not prescriptive. They are descriptive. They are describing the ongoing downward spiral of the experience of Israel under a monarchy and that is about ready to happen just one two three kings in and we're already going to experience massive civil war and political unrest and we're going to talk today about the experience of Jeroboam and Rehoboam so why don't you join me in first kings chapter 11 first kings chapter 11 Jeroboam was one of Solomon's mighty men and uh, he was discovered because he was working on a wall and he was working with such industry to repair the breach in the wall. He was working with creativity, with industry, hard-working guy, that he was appointed as a, as a, as a mighty man, as a, as a person of significance under Solomon's regime. But in First Kings chapter 11, we pick it up in verse 26, an interesting thing happens. There's a prophet by the name of Ahijah. And Ahijah, one day, when 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 Jeroboam comes walking out, he, he's not a descendant of David. That's Rehoboam. He is one of Solomon's mighty men, a man of significance under Solomon's regime. And he's wearing a new coat, a new garment. And when the prophet Ahijah sees him, he arrests his attention, and he takes this beautiful new garment that, Rehoboam, that uh, Jeroboam is—it's uh, going to be hard to keep those straight here—that Jeroboam is is um, wearing. And he takes the garment and he cuts it into twelve pieces. Strange thing to do to a brand new suit or a brand new jacket or a brand new cape, whatever he was wearing. Cuts it into 12 pieces and then he prophesies over Jeroboam and says, the kingdom is going to be divided and because of Solomon's apostasy, because he has so completely departed from me and my will and from, from the law of Moses, I'm going to take away from him all but two of the tribes. And you, Jeroboam, will be king over Israel. And from this point going forward, as soon as Solomon dies, we no longer can talk about Israel as a homogenous, unified entity. We now have to talk about the two tribes of Judah and the ten tribes of Israel. And for the rest of the Old Testament, this is why some people get a little confused in the Old Testament. Sometimes we're talking about Judah, sometimes we're talking about Israel. And to further complicate matters, sometimes when the prophets talk about Israel, they're actually talking about Judah and Israel. But for our purposes today, very simply, there has been, as it were, a single tree of monarchy. There has been Saul and Solomon and David. We've talked about the rough road that they've been on. And now as we go into Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Rehoboam is a son of Solomon, and he's going to be the first king of Judah, the two tribes. And Jeroboam, as we've mentioned, is one of the mighty men from Solomon's regime. He will be the first king over the ten. So the kingdom is now divided. Now let's pick this up, we'll start in verse, we'll start in chapter 12 actually. Solomon has died there in the last part of verse, or chapter 11. And what I want to do today is I want to draw out a couple contrasts between the personality and character of Rehoboam and the personality and character of, of Jeroboam, the two um, kings. We'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 12. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. Why was he in Egypt? Well, when Solomon heard that Jeroboam had been walking and the prophet Ahijah had taken his garment, cut it into 12 pieces, and had said, you will be the king of 10 of the tribes, well, of course, now he was a wanted man by Solomon, so he flees. He flees. But he now hears, Jeroboam hears, when he's in exile in Egypt, that Solomon has died and so he returns. And he comes back to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who is being declared king. Verse 3, they sent and they called, now watch this, then Jeroboam and the assembly of Israel, the whole assembly of Israel. As I read through this and studied through this, it's, it's really awesome, frankly, to study the text of scripture. Because the first time you read through, you're like, okay, Whatever. The second time you read it through, you're like, oh, okay. When you start reading the text through three and four and five times, these fascinating little textual indicators begin to emerge. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the little textual indicators for who Jeroboam is and his personality and his basic character already are beginning to emerge in in verse 3 when it says Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam saying. So get the picture in your mind. Here's exiled Jeroboam, the very one over whom the prophet Ahijah had said that he would be a king of the ten. And they now come and present themselves. Israel presents themselves before Rehoboam, the new king. Solomon is dead and they have a request. Now the nature of the request is fascinating. Verse 4. Hey, your father made our yoke heavy Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Okay, now we think of the glory of Solomon's temple and all of the gold and all of the wisdom, but that came at a price, a very high price, a price on his subjects. All of Israel who had to work hard. I mean, in some ways, Solomon is not much different than Pharaoh in Egypt who forced the children of Israel to make bricks without straw. In fact, the yoke of Solomon to build his big grand edifice, remember, seven years on the temple, but how many years did he spend on his own house? Thirteen years on his own house. So so Solomon was a man with unbridled ambition. And now that Solomon is dead, the people are like, oh, man, we hope he doesn't tax us that much. We hope he doesn't make us work that much. And so they come and present themselves before Rehoboam, and they're like, listen, your your dad was a hard man, and it was hard to live. Sure, the temple is beautiful. That's actually going to come back to haunt Israel. We're going to see that in just a second. But, But how are you going to be? And Rehoboam says, hey, leave me alone for three days, for three days, and then come back, and I'll tell you how I'm going to be. Now, this is quite interesting. Verse six, King Rehoboam consulted. That's the first action that we're told that he does as king. This is not a man who rules by principle. He's a man who rules by seeing. By, hey, He consulted. He seeks advice. He looks to his cabinet. This was an easy answer. And the elders of Israel give him the easy answer. Verse 6. The elders who stood before him, uh, his father Solomon, while he still lived, they, uh, he said to them, how do you advise me? He's looking for counsel. He's looking for advice. Verse 7. And they spoke to him and they said, here's the deal. If you will be a servant to these people today a what no, no 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 if you as the king as the leader as the big banana as the top dog if you will be a what everyone if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them then they will be your servants forever this is their advice. If you put yourself in a posture, not of reigning over, but of humbly serving them, unlike your father who exacted heavy tolls upon them, these people will love you and they will serve you not out of fear or not out of obligation. They will be your servants out of loyalty. And uh, that didn't appeal in any way to Rehoboam's natural ambition. He was very much like his father in this regard. Verse 8 says, but he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he consulted the young men who had grown up with him that stood before him. And he he said to them in verse 9, what do you advise? What advice do you give? How do you advise the king? How should we answer the people who have said, hey, lighten the yoke upon us? Now this is quite interesting. Verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him and said, thus you shall say to the people who have spoken to you. You shall say, your father made our yoke heavy, But you make it lighter on, they said, you make it lighter on us. But this is what you say to them. My little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, ha, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, not even close. I will chastise you with scorpions. Okay, they basically are telling him, shoot your mouth off, humble these people, be a king flex your monarchical muscles, show your royalty, show your strength, and say, my father's pinky, ha, or, my pinky will be like my father's waist. And where he, he just chastened you with whips, I will chasten you with scorpions. And so the people come before him. Verse 13, it says, then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given to him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. And he basically said that to them. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will make your... I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Look at verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people. This is a little textual indicator now of Rehoboam's personality. We're going to go through this story and we're going to see what was Jeroboam like? What was Rehoboam like? So notice Rehoboam or Jeroboam. When Jeroboam, when it comes time to present his case, he galvanizes the people and they come and make a presentation. When Rehoboam says, hey, how should I relate to the people, the people said, don't come close to them, his advisors, his young advisors said, don't come close to to them in fraternal mutuality. No, 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 distance yourself from them. In fact, you're the king. If your dad was hard, you'll be harder. If your dad was harsh, you'll be harsher. If your dad was tough, you will be tougher. And so he distances himself, and it says there at the beginning of verse 15, the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, when he'd cut up his cloak. Verse 16. When all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, they were like, hey man, our life is hard. what, What are you, Pharaoh? You know, Solomon, what's going on here? We just want to live in the land and dwell in safety and peace and rest. And Rehoboam comes on, big tough guy like, boom, my dad was tough, I'll be tougher still. So look at verse 16. They say, we're over this what share do we have with David we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents O Israel now and to your own house O David so Israel departed from their tents verse 17 but Rehoboam and look at the next two words reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah notice the language he didn't just reign in in Judah he reigned over. Some translations say he ruled over. Two pictures are going to emerge. One in which, well, I don't want to, give you the, I don't want to let the punchline out so far. We'll just, we'll just continue on. We'll let the picture emerge from the text rather than me telling you. Verse 17, Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the land of Judah. Then King Rehoboam, he's the king now. Or no, excuse me, King Rehoboam. I'm going to get these mixed up all sermon. King Rehoboam sent um, this guy named Adaram who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones. Rehoboam is so out of touch with reality that he thinks he's going to send a tax collector back to these people that he just said, I'm going to scourge you with scorpions and they're going to willingly surrender their taxes. So this tax man shows up and they, they kill him. And when Rehoboam sees that they killed the tax man, he gets in his chariot and he flees. Verse 19 says, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day, and at this point you have a split kingdom. You have the ten tribes with Jeroboam and the two tribes with Rehoboam in Judah. Now look at verse 20. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him. Now watch what happens. Israel reaches out to their king. They sent for him and they called him to the congregation and they made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but only the tribe of Judah only. Verse 21. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000, and he basically gets all these men together and he's gonna go wage war against the 10 tribes. And a prophet by the name, I think his name is Shemaiah, shows up and says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You will not be waging war against your brothers. And so Rehoboam stands down. Now, Jeroboam is in a... Difficult situation. Let's just sort of try to understand the psychology of where, where Jeroboam's at. He has just seen how this power over and this distancing yourself from the people didn't work. Right? It didn't work at all. And so he's going to go to the opposite extreme. He's going to swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And we pick it up in verse 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. And he dwelt there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, hmm, this is, the the chronicler, the historian wants you to know what was going on in Jeroboam's mind. This is what he was thinking. The kingdom may return to the house of David. He's thinking about the feasts, the annual feasts. And when they return, they're going to see the beautiful temple, they're going to go back to Jerusalem, and I might lose my kingdom. Verse 26, this is what he says in verse 27. Verse 28, therefore the king asked advice. It's funny how regularly the word advice and counsel comes up in these chapters. These are not men that are motivated by principle. These are not men that are as true to duty as a needle to the pole. They are continually seeking the advice of others, trying to do the thing that they think will please those who are around them. So this is the advice that he's given. And this story just reeks of a similarity to a story that that it'll jump out to you, I think. Verse 28, he made two calves of gold... And he said to the people, Ah, it's too much for you to go all the way up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now this is so interesting. This is the very language that had been used by Aaron at the base of Mount Sinai When Moses was at the top of Sinai's summit and he was taking time and he was delaying and he wasn't coming down, and then finally they made a golden calf and Aaron's exact words were, behold, O Israel, the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I don't know if this is intentional. It sure seems to be. Jeroboam is, as it were, walking in the footsteps of Aaron. He sets up these golden calves and then he uses the exact language that Aaron used. Now let's take a look at what we've got up here. This is what's going to emerge. We'll just take a pause in the story and we'll come back to it. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 30 tells us there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So this is massive civil conflict in the nation of Israel. Degeneration is happening. It's just going down and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Over the next three Sabbaths, we'll have a survey of the rest of the book of Kings and the, the rest of the book of Kings and the rest of Chronicles. And you'll see just how dismal it can get in anticipation of our next chapter exile now jump with me over to the experience of jeroboam and it's back in chapter 11 i want to show you something very interesting here first kings chapter 11 first kings chapter 11 this is when ahijah has first seen him he's cut the garment into 12 pieces and he's prophesying over him now this is fascinating it's very similar to what jared preached in his sermon about what might have been Verse 37 says, I'm in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 37. So I will take you, God speaking through his prophet Ahijah, to Jeroboam, and you will reign over your heart's desires. You will be king over Israel. Watch this. Then it shall be if you heed all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes, my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and I will build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Oh, this is fascinating. God here, through the prophet Ahijah, is saying, Jeroboam, the house of David, has, uh, uh, under Solomon's reign, has erred mightily, so much so that I'm going to rend the kingdom away from him. I'm going to tear the kingdom away from him, just like I've torn and cut this garment of yours. He says, and here's the vision. Jeroboam, the vision is that if you, if you live in accordance with my laws and my statutes, with my will, with my plan with, for your life, I will give Israel to you and to your descendants. It will be awesome. Now, here's the point. God is always working with if and what could be, not just with what is. In every one of our lives, we are faced again and again with these ifs, these conditional ifs. If you will be faithful to your wife, then this is what will happen. If you will be faithful to your husband, this is what will happen. If you will be faithful in returning your tithe and being a faithful supporter of God's ministry, this is what will happen, if. There's all of these conditionalities where God is saying, look, I've made the world to operate in a certain way. I've I've made things to operate in a selfless, magnanimous, wonderful, cascading way. And if you get yourself in the stream of my blessing, if you get yourself in the stream of my blessing, this awesome thing is going to happen, then this awesome thing, then this awesome thing, this awesome awesome stuff is going to happen. God is always dealing with these ifs. But check this out. What is right now always hinges on what if. How the decisions that we've made in the past have created the reality that we are in today. And, the, and it's also ongoingly true. The decisions that we make today, the ifs of today, create the izes of tomorrow. Do you get it? If you are faithful today, that will, create you a, that will create a certain kind of person tomorrow. If you are rebellious today, that creates a certain kind of person and a certain kind of situation tomorrow. And so God, as it were, speaks faith into the life of Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. He's like, I see a vision. I see possibility. I see potential if. And as we're going to see, that, that reality is, is never realized. This is what emerges as the story continues. We'll jump back over to chapter 12, the golden calves. Rehoboam rules over the people oh my dad was tough I'll be tougher you got scourges from him you're gonna get scorpions from me he rules over the people but watch what happens with Jeroboam he's going to be ruled by the people oh ah, oh, it's so far to go up to Jerusalem what does he do in response to that difficulty of traveling all the way to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feasts look at this verse 29 He set up two places of worship, one in Bethel and one in Dan. It's so inconvenient to have one place of worship. I'll give you two. I'll take good care of you. Here's one in Bethel and here's one in Dan, verse 30. Now this thing became a sin for the people who went down to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines in the high places. Hey, I'll keep the people that like to go in the high places happy as well. He made priests from every class of people oh, this whole just the Levites thing and just the family of Aaron thing, well, of course, this was a logistical reality because all of the Levites had sided with Rehoboam. Well, who's gonna be the priest now at his new places of worship? So he says, anybody can be a priest. You wanna be a priest, you can be a priest. And we're gonna put a worship place in Dan, we're gonna put a worship place in Bethel. It's gonna be great. It's It's too far to go all the way up there. Notice what's happening here. Notice the picture that's emerging. Jump down to verse 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast. On the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar as he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month in which he had devised in his own heart. He ordained a feast for the children of Israel. You know what you guys need? You need a party. You, You need a party. Ordains this feast. Incidentally, it's exactly what Aaron did back at the base of Mount Sinai, and they offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Okay, so Rehoboam rules over the people where Jeroboam is ruled by the wishes and whims of the people. Rehoboam is, is, makes the people slaves. Oh, no, I will be tougher than my dad. But Jeroboam makes himself a slave to the people. Oh, what do you want? Oh, you want to be a priest? Okay. Oh, you want two places of worship? okay. Oh, you want a party? Okay, I'll institute a feast. Two pictures emerging here. I love this quotation, and I have for years, from George MacDonald. He was a pastor, poet, author, uh, died in 1905, and he says, It is not in the nature of politics that the best men should be elected because the best men don't want to govern their fellow men. What we're seeing here is, is two ditches, as it were, of leadership. We see two possible poles that people that have power can gravitate for toward. One is power over, it's leadership by position, and the other is leadership by politic. Just draw close to the people and give them what they want. And the funny thing is, is that I keep calling this leadership, it's not leadership at all. Ruling over is not leading, and coming alongside the people and saying, I'll give you whatever you want, that's not leadership either. It is a kind of rulership, but it certainly is nothing that resembles Biblical leadership, not the kind of leadership that God himself could have provided over Israel. Here's the text I was alluding to there in Exodus 32. Look at the similarities here. This is back at the base of Mount Sinai. So all the people broke off the golden earrings that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Where Aaron made two, though. Jeroboam says, I'm going to up the ante. Aaron made one. I'm going to make two. Now watch this. It says, then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's exact words that Jeroboam is quoting. It's like he's knowingly quoting Aaron. And he knows that Aaron ended up on the wrong side of history, so it's just remarkable that he would place himself there. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. That's exactly what Jeroboam did. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. This is the kind of leadership where you just give the people what they want, you try to make them happy. Hey, the people want a golden calf? Let's have a people want a party? Let's have a party. People want to be priests. You can be a priest. This is not leadership. This is simply placating. One rules by power, the other by polls. Now, chapter 13 we're not going to really spend any time on in particular, but it is quite a fascinating little story that I'll just say a word about. So this prophet shows up, we don't know his name. He shows up at this big feast. And he basically says, he prophesies over this ridiculous calf altar, this dual calf altar that's been built, and he basically says, this thing is ridiculous, and your altar's going to be broken, and all the ashes are going to be spilled out, and your kingdom's going to come to nothing. And no sooner does he say this, than the altar supernaturally cracks, and uh, Jeroboam is like, what? And he puts out his hand, and he says, arrest this guy, and then his hand withers up. And he's like, whoa, this is awkward. And he can't even draw his hand back in. So everybody sees the altar is broken. The prophet's hand that, or the king's hand that tried to arrest the prophet is now withered up. And then Jeroboam, being the vacillating, ridiculous, lily livered, spineless jellyfish that he was, he immediately turns and he says, oh, please pray to your God. Pray to God that my hand might be restored. So the prophet's like, all right, God, please restore his hand. (laughs) Goes right back to normal. And then check this out. Look at this guy. He is such a politician. Look at verse 7. After all of that drama, I'm in 13.7. Then the king said to the man, hey, come home with me and, and take a shower, refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. This guy is ridiculous. He is such a people-pleasing. Today, politics all over the world are filled exactly with people like Jeroboam, Jeroboam right? They just do what the people want. They, no spine, no principle, no sense of direction. Nope, nope, nope. Just give the people what they want. And then look at this. I love this. Verse 8. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half of your house, I wouldn't go in with you. I wouldn't even eat bread or drink water in this place. And then he just, he just takes off. Now that prophet ends up actually going not as well as you might hope, but that's another story. Now jump down right to the very end of that same chapter, chapter 13. We'll pick it up in verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways. Even though his altar cracked and his hand had turned palsied for a moment, even that couldn't dissuade him. What does he do in verse 33? He again made priests from every class of people. He was so egalitarian, so fair, so kind. Oh, everybody can be a priest. We don't need the Levites. That's so elitist. That's so exclusive. Whoever wished, look at this, whoever wished to be a high priest, he consecrated him. He became one of the priests of the high places himself. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam and so, uh, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Now, this is how things wind up with Jeroboam. Chapter 14, then we'll skip over to Rehoboam. Look at chapter 14. The prophet Ahijah shows up, the same guy that had cut his garment into 12 pieces at the beginning, this prophet shows up and is like, remember that big if? You remember that big if, Jeroboam? That whole big if? That if you would be faithful, and if you would follow the statutes, and if, then you would have this and Do You remember that big if? Well, you are on the wrong side of that if. You place yourself on the wrong side of history, some quasi-ironic impersonator, and then he just gives this horrific prophecy over him. We'll just read part of it. Verse 7, "'Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel.'" Because I exalted you from among the people and I made you ruler over my people Israel, I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you on a platter, I added that part, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart, that's what we talked about all last week, heart, to do what was right in my eyes, but you have done more evil than everyone who was before you. You have gone and made for yourself other gods, molded images to provoke me to anger, and you have cast me behind your back. And what he goes on to say is pretty disgusting. I don't want to read it in church, okay? So he, the prophet shows up and says, fail, massive fail. So between these two, one guy is a total politician and the other guy is a total tyrant, okay? One rules by power, the other rules by polls. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says, hey, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Right? There are two major faults that people can fall into, two major ditches into which leaders can fall, either to rule over or to not lead at all. Either of those two are massive failures. And that's not just for kings, by the way. It's not just for kings and politicians. It's for us. It's for the leadership of this church. Let me just speak here briefly to the 14 or 15 elders that we have in this church. Elders, we don't want to fall into this ditch. We don't want to fall into the ditch where we're lording it over the people, but neither do we want to fall into the ditch where we're not providing leadership. I want to speak to those of you that have children. You can lead your children in one of two ways. You can be the parent that rules over your... No, never, not... No, you can be that parent and create rebellion, which is exactly what that kind of behavior does. When Rehoboam said, oh, I'll be tougher than my dad, I'll be stronger than my dad, the people are like, we're out. They rebelled. And a lot of rebellion, I'll just put this right out on the table there, a lot of rebellion in Christian circles and in Seventh-day Adventist circles is a direct result of unreasonable parents giving rules without reason or relationships. And the, par- and the kids are just like, peace out, I'm out. I'm 18, see ya. Right? It happens. But then, th- th- then there's the other p- way that you can parent. You know, those parents that are just like, oh no, he'll be fine. You just give them what they want, when they want, how they want. Kids running around terrorizing the church, terrorizing the neighborhood, terrorizing the family, terrorizing you, and you're just as happy. Oh, look at her. Oh, she's so cute. Yeah, she's writing on the walls. I know. Look at the art. It's just so... I'm telling you two massive mistakes one is to try and overrule and the other is to not lead at all there's a way that seems right the end thereof is death through much of the rest of kings this phrase comes up again and again and again more than a dozen times this phrase occurs it'll say so and so whatever the king's name was was, Jehoash or whatever So-and-so did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who who made Israel to sin. It says it again and again and again. In other words, Jeroboam becomes a byword for the rest of Old Testament history, how not to do leadership. You don't do leadership like that. You don't do it like that. You don't do it like that. You don't do it like that. All right, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, we'll do Jeroboam, Rehoboam in one second. Look at this final quotation here. Prophets and Kings, page 107. The apostasy introduced during Jeroboam's reign became more and more marked until finally it resulted in the utter ruin of the kingdom of Israel. Yet the Lord did not give Israel up without first doing all that could be done to lead them back to their allegiance to him. For the dis- Okay, now we're to Rehoboam. Go with me to Chronicles. We're going to just go out of the Kings over to Chronicles. Of course, the story is also here, but come with me to 2 Chronicles. The Rehoboam story is easier in some ways. So here's what happens with Rehoboam. Because Israel, because he's much smaller, he's only got two tribes, and he now feels threatened by the ten tribes. He'd already marshaled the army and was going to go down there and you know kick some kick some backside. And the prophet Shemaiah showed up and said, "Don't even think about it." God's like, don't even think about waging war against your own people. So s- people who rule by power, I want to say this. People who rule by power and by, by position, they often suffer from massive insecurity. They're overcompensating, right? And there's lots of studies that have been shown on this. People that are, that are overbearing, they're compensating, right? They're, they're actually really timid or cowardly inside, and, and they're, they're going to overcompensate. I think that's what's happening with Rehoboam, because watch what happens with Rehoboam. Now he's constantly on the defense, and we'll pick it up in verse 5 of Second Chronicles chapter 11. So Rehoboam remained in Jerusalem, and he built cities for defense. Builds these defense cities. If he can't go on the offense against Israel, he builds these defensive cities. Look at how many he built. Verse 6. He built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Beth, Zer, Sokah, Adalam, Gath, Merisah, Ziph, Adoram, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron, which are in Judah and Benjamin, fortified cities. Now look at what he's doing here. Verse 11. He fortified the strongholds. He put captains in them and stores of food and oil and wine in every city. He put shields and spears. Look at this guy. He made them very strong. The chronicler, chronicler wants you to know. He made them very strong. Okay, all right, so he made them very strong. Now, he continues to worship in the high places and serve the demons just like Jeroboam did. Now, jump down. This gets very interesting. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Rehoboam took for himself as wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremith, the son of David, and of Abihail, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. Oh, this sounds familiar. And she bore him children, this is gonna get hard, Jeush and Shamariah and Zeham. After he took Meachah, the granddaughter of Absalom, and bore him Abijah, Attai, Ziza, and Shem- Shelemith. Now, Rehoboam loved M- Meaka, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all of his wives. Oh, here we go. Heard this before. And his concubines, for he took 18 wives, 60 concubines. Can't even compare to his dad. His dad had hundreds, he only has dozens. 60 daughters. Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. So this is one of his sons. Watch this. He dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout the territory of Judah and Benjamin, every fortified city. So he takes his sons from all these wives, sticks them in each of these fortified cities. Now watch this. Gives them provisions in abundance, and he also provided many wives for them. This guy is made in Solomon's image. But Solomon was made in David's image, who couldn't stay faithful to one woman. See, we got a problem here. It's a generational problem this is a problem that goes back to David. David passes it on to Solomon. Solomon passes it on to Rehoboam. Rehoboam passes it on to his children. Okay, unfaithfulness, departure from God's will, departure from the law of Moses. Now, what ends up happening in chapter 12 is that Egypt shows up and gives Rehoboam and all of his strong fortified cities a good shellacking. Look in verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom, he strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all of Israel along with him. So now here he is. He's got these strong cities, but he doesn't have a strong God. So here he is in his walled little cities with all of his provisions, sitting there with his generator and all of his canned food, just waiting for for Egypt or or Israel to attack. Verse 2, and it happened in the fifth year that King Roaboam, that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord, 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen and other people without number who came up from Egypt and Lubim and the Suklom and the Ethiopians. Verse 4. Look at this. Look at how easy this is. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and he came to Jerusalem. That's the chronicler. And he took the fortified cities. No great war, no struggle. It's just like the guy rolls up, Shishak rolls up from Egypt, and he just takes the fortified cities, and he makes his way up to Jerusalem. He is just absolute. Now, here's the interesting thing. Look what I put up on the screen here. For the disobedient, God's mercy can start to look a lot like judgment. If if we place ourselves in a position of rebellion against God and His will, if if we orient ourselves away from the way that God has made the world to operate... God will send us mercies, but God's mercies can look like Shishak, the king of Egypt, ravaging our lives. God could send you a mercy, but that mercy might look just like a judgment, because God loves you just enough to get your attention, whatever the cost. This is the tricky thing. If we find ourselves operating in harmony with God's goodness, in harmony with his will, in harmony with his ways, in harmony with his law, God's mercies look like mercies, But if we orient ourselves over and against God's will, God's way, and God's word, God will send you something that you perceive as a judgment, and it's actually the mercy of God trying to arrest your attention and get you back on track. Shishak shows up, and Rehoboam thinks, this is the worst possible thing! And God's like, this is the only hope you have. The only hope you have, the only way I can get your attention is now to just wipe these fortified cities away as if there were no spears or provisions or anything in them at all. Now, this looks great. This is just absolutely astonishing. Jump down to verse 9. So Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He's come right now to the very seat of the empire. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. Now, this is where I said earlier that Solomon, all of his grandeur, all of Solomon's ambition, it, it served a really nice purpose for Solomon, but look at what it's done now. It led Solomon right out of the truth. It led Israel right out of the of, a, of the truth because they wanted. They were like, "Hey, look at this guy! Israel is now fractured over all of Solomon's beauty," and. All of the nations around are like, look at all the gold, look at all the stuff. They began to want, where if Solomon had been more humble and had just built a simple temple, didn't have to be so ornate and so opulent, you wouldn't have all the surrounding nations saying, hey, we're going to go get some of that. But as soon as he built it up, all these nations are like, hey, we want some of that. And so they come up, and this whole plan of Solomon's, is, even though Solomon's in the grave, he's dead, he's sleeping. What a fool! For the wisest man who ever lived, What a fool! Just one generation away, people are marauding his beautiful works of art, and this is where the sermon title comes from. Watch this. Verse 9. He took everything. He carried away the gold shields that Solomon had made. Okay, I just got to remind you briefly. Let me just do this. Let me just remind you of the absurdity of, of Solomon's ambition. You might remember this from last Sabbath. I'm reading from 1 Kings chapter 10. The weight of gold that came to Solomon every year was, does anybody remember how many talents of gold it was? 666 talents. A big, giant, man-made ridiculousness. Now watch this. Besides that from the traveling merchants and from the, 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 the traders from all the kings of Arabia, King Solomon made, watch this, 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of hammered gold. Gold, of course, is a very malleable metal. It's a ridiculous thing to make a shield out of. The only reason you would do that is if you're showing off. Oh, my shields are made of gold. Well, gold is a terrible metal. It's like my shields are made of putty, my shields are made of mud. You know, it makes these shields out of gold. And uh, he puts them in this house in Lebanon, and then remember this, he made a giant throne. Does anybody remember what the throne was made out of? Ivory, and then what did he do with it? Oh, that wasn't opulent or ridiculous enough. He overlays the ivory with gold. The whole thing is a giant farce. It's ridiculous. It goes down and it says, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Oh, look at Solomon. Look at all of his grandeur. Look at how great he is. Whoa. And all the kingdoms looking. And then, so here's what happens. Shishak, the king of Egypt, comes up. He's like, I'll take those shields. Takes the shields. They're not Solomons anymore. All that hard work that Solomon ex- uh, exacted on his people, it's just useless. It's gone. It's now residing in Egypt. But this is where it gets funny. Funny to the point tragic to the point of being funny and much of the old testament is that way it's impossible to imagine that people could be this filled with folly until you look in the mirror in the mornings when you brush your teeth and you see similar kinds of folly because the things that happened to them are examples for us check this out verse 10 then king rehoboam made bronze shields in their place well bronze isn't a particularly good metal either for for making a shield. And he committed them to the hands of the captains of the king guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. What they're doing guarding is ridiculous since Shishak just came, walked up, and took the goodies and left. No, you guard the house. So if they come back, you can open the door. Let them in. Give them some cookies when they come in. Verse 11. Whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guard would go bring these ridiculous shields out, and then they would take them back and put them in the guard room when they were done. See, he couldn't make them out of gold. So now he just makes them out of bronze he does humble himself briefly let's see what happens here we can wrap this up beloved just some simple points here strength without god is weakness can the church say amen strength without god is weakness you fortify your cities all you want you can fortify your finances all you want you're not returning tithe don't expect the blessing of god i said that you can do all you want fortify your finances diversify your portfolio you're not faithful with the lord there are no guarantees no guarantees Okay? So, so you can be strong, but if, you, if you're not strong with God, you just, that's weakness. Okay? How about this one? Safety without God is danger. The world is clamoring for safety right now because everybody's terrified of the terrorists, right? But I want to tell you this. All of that safety, 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 the only thing that can keep you safe in a world gone crazy is God. Safety without God isn't safety at all. It's the most dangerous place you can be. You're in more danger to be here and not in a relationship with God than to be in Syria right now and be connected to the Lord Jesus. Wealth without God is really poverty. All of that wealth that you might be amassing, you might be, oh, I am going to diversify, I'm going to do this and all that. You're not being faithful with the Lord. It's poverty, man. It's poverty. Ellen White, although Solomon had longed to prepare the mind of Rehoboam, this is his son, he knew he was a bad dad. He knew, he'd, he knew he'd ruin much of his life, but he had these ambitions to, be a, to try and be a good dad. His chosen successor to meet with wisdom the crisis foretold by the prophet of God, he had never been able to exert a strong molding influence for good over the mind of his son, whose early training had been so grossly neglected. Rehoboam had received from his mother, the Ammonitess, a stamp of vacillating character. At times he endeavored to serve God, that's true, but he was not steadfast, and at last he yielded to to the influences for evil that had surrounded him from infancy. In the mistakes of Rehoboam's life and in his final apostasy is revealed the fearful result of Solomon's union with idolatrous women. And you could just as easily say, and Solomon's union with idolatrous women was a direct result of David's taking of Bathsheba. It's generational. Rehoboam never even gets to get off the ground because Solomon as a bad dad didn't invest in him and there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities can be in our lives even in the church. We feel like, "Hey, I failed in certain areas, so you feel somehow disqualified to speak to your children." I want to tell you something. You are not disqualified. If you have failed in certain areas of your life as a young man or as a young woman, if you failed in certain areas, that doesn't disqualify you from teaching your children. It eminently qualifies you to teach your children not to make the same mistakes that you made. But too many of us will be like, well, you know, how can I tell my son? I I did that. How can I tell my daughter? I did that. I'm telling you right now, unless you want this to be a generational curse, maybe you got it from your parents who got it from their parents, you can break that generational curse. You can break that cycle by saying, by the grace of God, I want you to do better than I did. Or maybe you were lucky enough or blessed enough to have your parents break the generational curse in your family, or maybe your parents' parents broke the generational curse. All right, a lot we could say here. Let's just end it like this. We have this mistaken idea that God can just do anything He wants. This is not the case. God cannot do everything, and He doesn't even usually get His way. Okay? Much of the story of the Old Testament is God trying to do something, but the people are resisting. And this is, of course, what C.S. Lewis referred to as the greatest miracle, that the creation would be able to resist the Creator. The only safety in Jeroboam's life was the will of God and the law of God and the goodness of God. The only safety in Rehoboam's life was the law of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God. And the only safety in your life is the will of God. Everything else is bronze, beloved. Everything else is bronze. The only gold that you should really be concerned about is putting yourself and your family firmly in the stream of God's will and God's blessings and God's goodness. In fact, You can never leave God's love, but you can leave His will. You'll never leave God's love. It it, it is all-encompassing. Nothing lies outside of the boundaries or parameters of God's love, but you can leave His will, and we sometimes sort of kid ourselves into thinking that if God loves us, that everything's okay. God loves you no matter what you do, but being loved by God and being in the center of God's will are two very different things. Yes, God loves you, and God won't love you anymore if you follow His will, but you, you, you and me and our families will be far better off if we place ourselves in the stream of God's goodness, in the stream of His mercy, in the stream of His Word, in the stream of Scripture. If we place ourselves there, we can avoid the ditch of both Rehoboam, who was this overbearing, ridiculous person who was just living generational curse from his father. Or we can avoid the sin of Jeroboam, who just was an absolute people pleaser, no spine, no sense of principle, no sense of direction, no sense of of morality. Beloved, we can avoid that. We can lead our families. We can lead ourselves. We can lead our church. We can be leaders in our community, in our places of worship. We can be, by the grace of God and that alone, the people that God has called us to be. And when we do that, We can become difference makers in the world. Do you believe that? Difference makers in the world. But beloved, everything else is bronze. It's just bronze. The the only currency that you should be concerned about, the only currency that I should be concerned about, is the gold of being in the will of God. 100%. Today, Father, I want to be in the center of your will. Tomorrow, Father, put me in the center of your will. Father, put me put my sons, put my wife, put us in the center of your will. With our finances, I want our finances to reflect that we're in the center of your will. I want the way that we eat to reflect that we're in the center of your will. I want the things that we watch or conversely don't watch to indicate that we are living in the center of your will. I want the things that we do and don't do to communicate that we are, li- that we are trying to live in the center of your will. I want the way that I talk to my wife, talk to my children, to indicate that I want to be in the center of God's will. Do you hear this? Uber practical. Beloved, the only currency that you and I should be caring about is the gold of the will of God. Can you say amen? That's the appeal that I have for you. Don't expect God to do for you what, he, what, what, what God is saying. What do I do? What, do I, what Jeroboam's life? It's like, hey, God, come and take care of this. He was like, what do you mean, take care of this? You set up, you set up a golden altar and you you made a feast and you made everybody else. free. I'm not this little teddy bear God. I'm not, I can't just bless your ridiculousness. Yeah? So, beloved, my appeal to you, my appeal to myself is is to live in the light and in the stream and in the waterfall, the cascading waterfall of God's goodness, of his grace, of his mercy, to place ourselves firmly in the stream of the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. We are challenged again and again and again by these Old Testament stories, these examples to us. Father, they complained and we are tempted to complain. They were idolaters, we are tempted to idolatry. They were sexually immoral, we are tempted to sexual immorality and infidelity. Father, these are not ancient stories of ancient people that have no bearing or resemblance to us living in Australia in 2015. Father, these are decidedly modern stories. These are stories that touch very practical and very, very sensitive places in our own life, the way we spend our money, the way we parent, the way we recreate, the way that we spend our time, how we interact with others, the kindness that we have or don't have. Father, my prayer is that we will avoid both the extremes of Jeroboam and of Rehoboam, and that in humility by your grace and your grace alone and that in meekness by your grace and your grace alone we will place ourselves firmly within the shower the cascading waterfall of your goodness so that mercy will look like mercy and grace will look like grace and we won't have to see your judgments coming to us to arrest and awaken our attention Father in heaven, I pray that there will be no Shishak's king of Egypt that have to come into any of the lives of the members here. Lord, I pray that there would be no Shishak that has to come into my life. Something that looks like a judgment, but it's really an act of mercy from your hand. Father, please help us to be the people that you've called us to be. The Seventh-day Adventist Church here in Kingscliff. This little little niche that you've given us here, the southern part of the Gold Coast, Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be your people. We want to be like Jesus. We want to show others who Jesus is. And Father, please keep us in the center of your will. We love you and we thank you. Please save us, save our families. We ask in the name of Jesus, let everyone say, Amen.